6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27. Good, we're in Isaiah, fabulous book of prophecy. Exciting, a little frustrating in some respects because being such a large book, we generally have to move along at some kind of a pace to keep it moving, and yet there's so much here. But we are about to enter a section that some scholars call the Little Apocalypse. We're in chapter, starting chapter 4 through 27, 24, 25, 26, 27, four chapters, called by some the Little Apocalypse. And what you will notice right away, as you've been patiently going through what I sometimes feel is a dirge of judgment on all these nations, Fortunately, Isaiah has this incredibly eloquent style, and he keeps throwing things in there. Even in the, in the deep, dark passages, there's always a, a little jewel he throws in there for our pickup, if you will. But at this point, at verse 1 of chapter 24, he really shifts gears. Up till now, we've been talking about the nation. He essentially has been talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then systematically going around the nations around Judah. Speaking of Assyria and Edom and Babylon and, and so forth. But at this point, you really can see him shift gears. He really alters his style. It'll become very, very obvious that uh, the scope of what he's talking about in these few chapters is clearly the whole world globally as one package. And that, for Isaiah, is a, is, is a little different. Let's just jump in here. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. This is one of those passages that I have not seen the liberals argue that's already been fulfilled in the past. <laughs> I have not seen the world turned upside down. Morally, it seems to be. But uh, we'll see quickly that Isaiah's vision here is very, very vivid and very literal. Verse 2, And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with the master. And with the maid, so with her mistress, and with the buyer, so with the seller, and as with the lender, and with the borrower, as with the taker of interest, so with the giver of interest to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken his, this word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away, the earth languisheth and fadeth away, the haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and frustrated the everlasting covenant. Your King James may say broken, but I believe the Hebrew word really means frustrated. You see, there's a contradiction. Uh, it's almost like an oxymoron. You can't break an everlasting covenant. If you've broken it, it's not everlasting, right? You follow me? And that used to bother me until I found out that the word broken doesn't mean broken. It means frustrated. Now, the question that you can study on your own, but I'll give you a few hints, is which covenant are we talking about? One of the things you'll want to do as a serious student of the Bible is really study covenants. There's a number of them. And they're all quite different. Some of them are limited. Some are very broad. Your comprehension of God's dealing with Adam and his descendants will be 
Uh, it's essential that you understand the relationships that God has ordained, some of them quite conditional, some unconditional. Uh, we all speak of the Sinaitic Covenant, the law, the giving of the law. Very, very much uh, conditional, not everlasting. How do I know it's not everlasting? Because I have the book of Galatians, which makes that very clear. Abraham, covenant with Abraham, different thing altogether, unilateral, one-party covenant. God himself establishes it, and with God alone, it can't be broken. He's faithful. It required nothing of Abraham. Even if it did, later on, Jesus says he was faithful as far as God was concerned. But in any case, see, God's the only party to it, if you study that carefully. So the covenant with Abraham is unconditional. And that's not a technicality that uh, is essential because of, for an understanding of the Old Testament. That's a technicality you need to understand to keep from falling in the heresies that are being aggressively promoted within the body of Christ. One of the things that really disturbs, you know, we see a lot of the occult. We see the Anton LaVey of the Church of Satan. We see a lot of spooky stuff on the horizon. You know, strangely enough, that doesn't scare me. Maybe it should. <laughs> uh, it doesn't scare me. What really scares me are the subtleties that are being aggressively sold, promoted within the body of Christ. When I say that body, what I mean, I mean the churches collectively. The idea that the church is Israel, that God is through with Israel. Those are heresies. And uh, I'm hoping that those of you in this group are biblically taught soundly enough to recognize those kind of lies when you see them. God is not through with Israel, has a major role. And Jesus himself speaks of those who call themselves Jews and are not, meaning the church that calls themselves Israel, is of the synagogue of Satan. That's in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. For those of you, that may be a new idea. So learn the covenants. But then, of course, we have um, the Davidic covenant, which, of course, relates to the Messiah. And yes, indeed, Israel rejected it, but will, again, have a role uh, in that. And that, of course, is what prophecy is all about. Paul, in his definitive statement of the gospel called the book of Romans, spends three chapters hammering this home. This isn't Chuck Missler's off-the-wall ideas. There's plenty of those. This is centerline, root, solid theology. And your reference is Romans 9, 10, and 11. Important to, to master that. But there's also a covenant with Noah. This covenant involves the whole earth, not just Israel, the one he's talking about here, the whole earth. And it's my suspicion that what we're dealing with here is the franchise that was given to Adam and renewed with Noah to take care of the earth. If you have an ecological bent, boy, this is, this is what we're talking about, because the, the earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof, and so forth. And they frustrated the everlasting covenant. Therefore, verse 6, hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. God's dealing with sin is always burning. Our God is a devouring fire. You find that in Zechariah 5, and well, all through the book of Isaiah, we'll be touching upon that enough. We'll keep moving here. The new wine mourneth, the vine languisheth, all the merry-hearted do sigh, the mirth of the timbrels cease. And the noise of those who rejoice endeth, and the joy of the harp ceaseth. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. There is crying for wine in the streets. All the joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. And the city is left desolation, and the gate is smitten with destruction. Thus shall it be in the midst of the land among the people. There shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. 
Okay. Very, very eloquent language, very consistent with, and you'll see even more of that as we go here, with the book of Revelation. It sounds heavy. It sounds frightening. It is coming. It's interesting that we in our society find it easy to visualize situation normal. Things will continue as they always have. As we scurry about our business community with its ups and downs, as we watch the various entertainments, and as we just go day by day, it's easy to believe that everything's going to always stay the same. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the days of the Son of Man be, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the flood came. Nothing wrong with eating and drinking or giving marriage. That's not his point. The point is, it's business as usual, we're up to the end. So that's coming. And that's what the book of Revelation expands in great detail from chapter 4 through 19. Fortunately, as we shall shortly see, that doesn't affect you and I. We may see some of it. doesn't mean it's going to be easy pickings from here on, but it does mean that the heavy stuff will come after we're gone because God has promised that we, will, we are not appointed to wrath. And that's what we're talking about here is God's wrath coming. Let's move on. Verse 14. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore, glorify the Lord in the fires, even in the name of the Lord God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. For from the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, or more specifically, my misery, my misery, woe unto me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously, yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. When you see phrases like that, it reveals in the English what is very prevalent in the Hebrew, that this all is very, very symphonic, very, very uh, poetic. Not a dry prose, but a very high-styled, eloquent expression on the part of Isaiah. Getting more specific, verse 17, Fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. Uh -huh. Here we find this pit. We're going to hear more about this pit as we go here. This pit is also a prominent feature of the passages in the book of Revelation, especially chapter 9. Some strange things are tucked away in the abuso in the Greek, the, the bottomless pit. Now, if you are study geometry, you know where the bottomless pit has to be, right? Where is the only place that a bottomless pit can be bottomless? Center of the earth. And you say, Chuck, you've got to be kidding. You're educated in a scientific background. Do you really think that it's in the center of the earth? Yes, I do. That's what he said it was. I have these rather quaint, some people say romantic, in a technical sense, notions, but I do. I think it's there. And, uh, but in any case, what comes out of the abuso? Revelation chapter 13 describes two beasts, and they come out of where? The pit, the abuso. You will say, where's the Antichrist coming from? Syria, Jerusalem, Europe. Well, perhaps, but where does he really come from? Out of the abuso. He's a strange guy. He's Satan's man. And he's going to emerge probably not very far away. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. Oh, that's interesting. He that comes up out of the midst of the pit. I believe that's the guy that we see chronicled in Revelation 13. That is what's called there the beast. He has 33 titles in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. Coming world leader is my favorite title because it's sort of neutral. Most of the other titles cause us to be myopic. Not that they're not valid, but they cause us to focus on too little. He is going to be a broad-gauge guy, most attractive leader the world has ever seen. 
he's going to be embraced by everyone. Israel is going to accept him as the Messiah. Incredible. How will you recognize him when he comes? Because he'll bring us our temple. Interesting. I personally have this weird idea that he's going to somehow fulfill the expectations of Islam. And the new age. And you name it. He's going to be an incredible leader. And he's going to have solutions. And he's going to have an incredible career. Mid-career, he betrays Israel, and we see him for his true color. But that's getting ahead of the story. And that's coloring him with emotion that may be missing when he first shows up, if you follow me. Coming world leader. Most of what we know about him is in the Old Testament, so we pay heed here. But in any case, it's interesting how all of this, every phrase from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is consistent. Holy Spirit has engineered this presentation, so we should not be surprised to find it has what you would call integrity. And here we have indeed, he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit huh, shall be taken in the snare. Who, how is he going to be destroyed? By the brightness of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the windows from on high are open and the foundations of the earth do shake. Now that phraseology is interesting. We suddenly shift, if you will, from the book of Revelation to the book of Genesis. That phraseology may echo in your ears from Genesis 6, 7, 8, the flood of Noah. The flood of Noah is more than a flood caused by rain. The windows of heaven were opened, whatever that means. And the fountains of the deep and so forth. If you study Noah's flood, you realize there's far more going on there than just a lot of rain. In fact, a lot of things going on besides just a flood. The whole ecology of the earth was changed. But the point is, this phrase echoes Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, and other places. The earth is utterly broken down, verse 19. The earth is thoroughly dissolved, and the earth is moved exceedingly. Verse 20. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a booth. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. Has that been fulfilled in history? Not so you'd notice, right? Interesting, shall be removed like a booth. And the word booth is reminiscent of the Feast of Booths, these little temporary shelters that a Jewish family will erect in their backyard to commemorate. Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkoth, which will be five days from Yom Kippur. Temporary structures, and the earth will be removed like a temporary structure, it says here. Heavy, heavy stuff. But that's just the beginning. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Now, the kings of the earth upon the earth, that we can relate to. We see that book of Revelation, the kings of the earth hide in caves saying rocks fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. In the, whole, in the whole sweep of the book of Revelation, we're sensitive to that climactic judgment upon the kings of the earth. But notice something else here. The Lord shall punish the host of the high ones. Remember Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's the real game. There are those that point out the physical world is simply a manifestation of a spiritual battle. So what you and I see is just the tip of the iceberg as the expression goes. That the real conflict involves the host of the high ones. Interesting. And the kings of the earth upon the earth. Something is the strangest thing to me. Everybody has their hang-ups, I guess. The strangest thing to me as I study the end times and see these climactic things uh, chronicled in uh, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Revelation, so on, is that the kings of the earth, all of them, not most of them, not just the bad guys, all of them, take up war against 
the Lord and against his anointed. That's incomprehensible to me. I can understand them being wrong. I can understand them being subject to some pretty stupid policies. But I can't imagine, I can't imagine taking up arms against the God of the universe. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, I'm sorry. I'd love to be able to chronicle that in credible terms. I find that amazing. Of course, every time I go to Washington, I come back and figure nothing's amazing. <laughs> every time I hear they go on vacation, I have a sigh of relief. You know. But anyway, the host of the high ones. Incidentally, those of you that are uh, the kings of the earth take up war against the Lord and his anointed. Psalm 2. In fact, let's, maybe we should look at that. It's a good point. Let's pause for a second and do a little bit of background. Let's take a look at Psalm 2. Psalm 1, very comfortable, very root, basic psalm. We get to Psalm 2, and the more you read it, the stranger it sounds. But what you need to understand is, the clue to understanding Psalm 2 is to recognize that it's a conversation among three people. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's provocative for that very reason. One of them raises the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers... Take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Ooh, that's interesting. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his great displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It's not a figure of speech. It's a specific geographic location on the planet earth. I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Interesting. That incidentally is a fulfillment of the promise that Gabriel gave Mary and Luke. It's not an Old Testament idea. It's also a New Testament idea. Don't lose sight of that. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Interesting psalm. Interesting psalm. And when you get home tonight, you can reread it and, and uh, annotate it like a shooting script. Figure out who's saying what to whom. That's your homework assignment. Okay. The kings of the earth are going to take up arms against the Lord. Boy, that's a... Other references for that kind of theme is uh, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, and Acts chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Similar related uh, expressions. Revelation 17, 14, Acts 4, 26 and 27. That brings us down to verse 22. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered, where? In the pit. There we go again. The pit. And shall be shut up in prison, and after many days shall be visited. The pit. Interesting. We might take a look at a few passages just to keep ourselves stirred up here. Let's take 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. You might remember 2 Peter 2 when you 
hear things analogous to these, this foolishness they call the Jesus Seminar, where they cast votes on what Jesus said. I'm always in, intrigued with the arrogance that seems to come from certain quarters. I've gotten to the point in life when I see a lot of degrees by a person's name, I regard each one as a sign of insecurity. <laughs> now I'm being serious, but I know I'm usually flippant, but I mean it seriously. I'm always intrigued by that. I'm always, uh, always have a feeling if they're expecting if, if they cast enough votes, God would resign. <laughs> but when you run into that kind of thing, remember in 2 Peter chapter 2. Once I was covering for Hal on his radio program, when we have the call-ins, it was right after that Jesus seminar. I thought somebody surely is going to bring that up. And I was all ready just to read Second Peter 2, but no one brought it up. So, okay. But verse 4 is what we're interested in tonight, just to highlight where we're at. Second Peter 2, 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, or to Sheol, or, what, or to Tartarus's a phrase that only occurs here in the scripture. It's apparently a deep, deep part. And most scholars sort of assume it's also an allusion to the Abusa. And delivered them into the ch into chains of darkness to be reserved on judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, and so forth. And he goes on to make his point. It's interesting that God's attitude towards sin never changes. God is unchangeable. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's the point that Peter makes and also Jude makes. It's not that, gee, he was angry then, but he's, you know, he'll wink at it today. Wrong. God's attitude towards sin is unchanging. Your sin and mine. Fortunately, his grace provided an answer. Jesus Christ. And the more you understand the righteousness of God, the more you understand his indignation to sin, the more you understand that sin cannot coexist with him, that sin in his presence is destroyed. You and I in his presence would obviously be what? Destroyed. We understand the extremes he went to to make fellowship possible through the gift, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. But for if God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down. So these are real, these aren't figures of speech. These are real entities, powerful, sentient, hostile entities that fell way back then. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Isaiah 45. We're going to get into that whole thing again. Delivered them in chains of darkness. This, I believe, connects with Revelation 9 because there's some peculiar hostile creatures that are turned loose for a while. And I suspect that we can read Revelation 9 all you like and still have no idea what that all implies. Heavy stuff coming down. As long as we're in this kind of a mood, let's pop over to Jude. I love Jude. A little one-chapter book written by the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both James and Jude were his brothers, did not believe in him until after he was uh, resurrected. But uh, go on to do some... Noteworthy things. And, of course, Jude tells us all kinds of things. He tells us about prophecy before the flood, that the whole Enoch thing and all that. But we're interested tonight in verse 6. Speaking of the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. What's that alluding to? As you know, I believe that links to Genesis 6 and the whole conditions uh, preceding the flood. But left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. And again, this uh, seems to link to the same thing Second Peter does. And I believe these are the echoes that I hear when I look at verse 21 and 22. The host of high ones that are on high. 
They shall be gathered together as prisoners gathered in their pit, and they shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days they shall be visited. Then we get to verse 23. Then the moon shall be confounded, the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. The moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. You know, it's interesting to me how the book of Joshua is a preamble or a foreshadowing, a hint, a very elaborate hint of the book of Revelation. How Yehoshua sends in two witnesses before the battle of Jericho. And then he goes in with the seven trumpet thing and, and so forth. And every detail of the book of Joshua is fascinatingly a, an anticipation of the book of Revelation. How his enemies align themselves under a leader called Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness. And how they're defeated by signs in the sun and the moon in the battle of Beth Horon and so forth. And how the kings, when they're defeated, hide in caves and so forth. Joshua's going into the land. Three nations have already been taken care of. Seven are left. Seven nations are in the land. Interesting. Another Yehoshua is going to dispossess the land of the usurpers, except he's not talking about a parcel of ground we call Palestine. He's talking about the entire planet Earth. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. But again, in verse 23, the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. Analogous, if you will, to the battle of Beth Horon, where the sun was said, he said, be thou silent, and the moon in the, in the valley of Ajalon. Joshua 10, for those of you who may want to review that. Now, it's interesting. All this is going on, this heavy, apocalyptic, wild stuff, right? When does it happen? When the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Those aren't figures of speech. They're not allegorical. They're actual geographic places. You can go there, touch, feel, and see. You grab a pocket full of dirt and bring it home in a bottle. It's that ground, Mount Zion. Ground just a little to the west of uh, Teropian Valley, as the city of David outgrew that and went down that Teropian Valley, up the hill, that was Mount Zion. Generically speaking, a synonym for Jerusalem in general, but it's a very specific mountain, the Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem, no ambiguity about Jerusalem. Who's going to reign there? The Lord of hosts. And who is he going to reign before? Who's going to be part of his court? Who will be there? His ancients gloriously. That's interesting. What do you mean his ancients? I believe that tells you about their first resurrection. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.